0: The Durable Restoration Company is a proud sponsor of Berguin Wright Presents. At Durable Restoration, they specialize in exterior historic restoration services. All of their craftspeople and artisans are employees and trained in-house using traditional materials, tools, and techniques that are tried and true. They have a long list of historic landmarks across the nation that they are proud to have helped preserve for future generations. For all your upcoming restoration needs, contact Durable Restoration at DurableRestoration.com or call toll-free at 1-877-340-9182. Imagine for a moment that you're standing on the bow of a ship, with nothing but the vast ocean stretching outward in every direction. The salt of the water below fills the air around you. The creaking of the boards underneath your feet and the whipping of the sails in the wind above score your every waking moment. You're on a journey, a long journey, to a new home. One you might not have chosen, Had your homeland not been stripped of the very essence and identity that families just like yours had given it for generations? Now, a new world, the new world, awaits somewhere in the distance, offering you, your family, and your name a chance to build a new life, even though it will be one born under the same government that drove you away in the first place. This was the reality for tens of thousands of Scottish Highlanders who traveled to the American colonies in the 1700s. Out in front of them was the chance to begin again, but that also meant leaving behind a homeland now scarred by the countless losses of a failed rebellion against the British throne that had brought about the end of the clan system. Up until the early 1700s, Scotland's clans were its backbone, a kinship of blood and loyalty that defined the way of life in the country. Clans lived under a chieftain who shared their name by family or by fealty. They proudly wore the tartan colors of their clan and pledged to lay down their lives to defend it, an unwavering loyalty that sent many charging into the Battle of Culloden in 1746 when Scottish forces tried and failed to overthrow King George II's reign and install a man they believed to be the rightful heir. After the Jacobite uprising was defeated at Culloden, the clan system, the wearing of tartan, and the speaking of Gaelic were all outlawed, robbing these communities of their customs and Scotland of its culture. Many were forcibly removed from their ancestral lands, as their livelihoods were uprooted, while others voluntarily fled to seek better conditions. Whatever drove them to the ships bound for the colonies, they all likely recognized that their best future might rely on starting fresh across the Atlantic Ocean. Plenty of people had made this journey before them. Some in Europe gladly packed up their lives for a chance to secure land and religious freedom in what was pitched as a grand experiment of opportunity. Many more would make that same journey in chains, with only a life of enslavement waiting for them on the other side. But for these Highland Scots, who filled the manifest of countless ships headed for America throughout the 18th century, this wasn't just about a new start. It was a chance to preserve their heritage on their terms, a leap of faith that would require putting down roots in a strange new world. Hello, and welcome to Bergwin Wright Presents Outlander in the Cape Fear, a new podcast series telling the stories of North Carolina's Cape Fear region through the history of one of its oldest historic sites. My name is Hunter Ingram. I'm the Assistant Museum Director for the Bergwin Wright House and Gardens in Wilmington, and I could not be more excited to be your host for this podcast. This season on Bergwin Wright Presents, we're exploring the real North Carolina history depicted in the global phenomenon that is Outlander, the historical fiction book series from author Diana Gabaldon and the stars series that adapted it for television. The Outlander story follows Claire, a World War II nurse who time-travels back to 1743 Scotland, where she meets and eventually marries A devoted Highlander named Jamie. Over the next eight episodes, we're going to pluck real characters and events from the fictional pages and episodes of their lives to shed light on the true North Carolina history that bridges the fact and the fiction. The TV series Outlander is about to begin its sixth season on stars, one that promises to bring its characters to the brink of the American Revolution. But what can the real people and events that Gabaldon laced into her story tell us about Colonial Wilmington in North Carolina on the eve of that war? Well, that's what we're going to explore. But we can't start this new endeavor if we don't begin where most Scottish Highlander stories do in America, with their arrival. Now, for those of you who don't know the Outlander series, don't worry. Each episode, I'm going to give you all the information you need about the story to follow along with us on this podcasting journey through history. But for those of you who do know this story, you'll remember that our main characters, Claire and Jamie Fraser, don't exactly arrive in the colonies as most Scots would have in the 1700s. After the first three books of Gabaldon's series, in the first three seasons of the Star's TV adaptation, the Fraser's Scotland story, which had weathered the Battle of Culloden, decades of separation, and their fair share of joy, transitions to America. Although, it's anything but smooth sailing to get here. After a rescue mission lures them to the Caribbean, Claire and Jamie's plan to return to Scotland is blown off course, quite literally, by a hurricane. Once the married couple and their family members on board come to, they realize they've been shipwrecked on the coast of the colony of Georgia in the late 1760s. In the ensuing fourth book, titled Drums of Autumn and the fourth season of the TV show, our characters decide to remain in the colonies, despite all odds, and build a home for themselves and other Scots known as Fraser's Ridge in the western mountains of North Carolina. But first, they make their way from Georgia to Wilmington, then a young port town in the lower Cape Fear region of North Carolina. It's here in Wilmington, and its once neighboring community of Brunswick Town, that thousands of real Scottish Highlanders would make their arrival to America. These weren't the only ports that would welcome Scots in the 1700s but they certainly saw some of the heaviest immigration. So what did these Scottish Highlanders see when they stepped foot in the Cape Fear, which offered them their first taste of the New World? And how does one go about rebuilding their life, thousands of miles from the only home they've ever known? Those are the questions we're going to answer today on Bergwin Wright Presents Outlander in the Cape Fear. Episode 1, coming To America. To talk about the Scottish Highlander immigration and what it meant for the Cape Fear area and certainly those Scottish Highlanders, I'm joined today by Jim McKee site manager for Brunswick Town, Fort Anderson State Historic Site in Winnebago, Jim, thank you so much for joining me.
1: My pleasure. Always, always enjoy talking to you, Hunter.
0: Well, I'm going to let you start out by telling our listeners, what was Brunswick Town? Why was it important to the colony of North Carolina in the years before the Revolutionary War? And why might it have been a place that Scottish Highlanders used as their entry point for America?
1: Well, Brunswick Town is where... Pretty much everything begins on the Cape Fear River. Uh, it's the first permanent established town on the Cape Fear, and it will grow to be the most important port in North Carolina during the 18th century. Brunswick was established in 1726 as a world class port. It was the home of two royal governors, Arthur Dobbs and William Trine. Trine was there for five years. He was only in New Bern for less than two. And Brunswick will be the focal point of the Stamp Act crisis in North Carolina in, seven, in February 1766, with one of the first, if not the first, successful armed rebellions against British authority in America. But it's, its primary importance was as a port. More naval stores shipped out of Brunswick than pretty much anywhere else in the 18th century.
0: And it's going to open kind of the gate to Wilmington, which is going to be upriver. And I know Correct. that one, one part of the story of Brunswick Town is this, almost the rivalry between Brunswick and Wilmington being built up in the 1700s and having to kind of siphon off and, and jockey for power and influence between the two ports that are only about 14 miles from each other.
1: Right. And that competition began as soon as Wilmington finally decided on the name Wilmington. It only took him 10 years.
0: And several but, other names.
1: And several other names, New Carthage, New Liverpool, Newtown, Newton, yeah. But you know, almost immediately, Wilmington will become the political center of the Cape Fear. And even though Brunswick's the port, having that political center was key to Wilmington's development. And it's the key to Wilmington getting that name out. Yeah, When we talk about Brunswick as a port, we call it Port Brunswick. Well, in reality, Port Brunswick early on consisted of just Brunswick. Then it was Brunswick and Wilmington. And then later on in the century, it was Brunswick, Wilmington, and Cross Creek, which is now Fayetteville. And what, what drove the, the Scottish Highlanders into the Cape Fear was uh, several reasons, but Brunswick and Wilmington specifically is they were the ports of entry. There were Scots that stayed in Brunswick, a few that stayed in Brunswick, there's a few that stayed in Wilmington, but the lion's share of the 15,000 that roughly came in through the port in the from 1739 to 1775 went upriver.
0: And for those who don't know where Wilmington sits on a map or where Brunswick sits on a map, this Cape Fear River and this entry has a direct access to the Atlantic Ocean. And that was a huge portion of it. And so being able to bring a deep water vessel up to Brunswick and eventually to Wilmington was incredibly essential to bringing in imports and then certainly exporting things. And so it was a very popular entry point. And it certainly understands or kind of gives credence to why when Diana Gabaldon's creating this story, Wilmington is a huge focal point. And as we've talked about before, it's where a lot of the Scottish Highlander records and manifest identify their arrival. Maybe not Brunswick, but probably Wilmington. So this connection between the two communities is, is going to be really important for all the people coming in.
1: It really is. And it's so easy to overlook Brunswick because – because Wilmington has the name power and people have to realize with the unique hydrography of the, of the Cape Fear river, deep draft vessels could not make it to Wilmington until after 1820. And it's because of an area called the flats that's located just upstream from Brunswick. So anything, any, any ship more than about 60 to 65 tons is not going to make it to Wilmington no matter what they do. But more than likely, even if they're passenger vessels, passenger vessels coming from Europe will not make it to Wilmington. They have to stop at Brunswick first. And from there, they the passengers get off. They either take a ferry to the opposite side of the river and take the road up to Wilmington, or they'll if they've got the money, they'll take a, a smaller vessel to Wilmington And probably continue all the way up to Cross Creek, because Cape Fear River was navigable for shallow draft vessels 100 miles upstream.
0: So let's talk about what people who have seen Outlander or read Outlander might have seen. Because as they know, and and as I kind of explained in our intro, our, our main series characters, Claire, Jamie, Fergus, Marsley, Ian they're going to arrive in America by far less than ordinary means. They're going to be shipwrecked in Georgia, and then they're going to make their way to the Wilmington area, and that's where we pick up their story in the fourth book and certainly at the beginning of the fourth season. But what would the immigration have been like for those who took the more ordinary route, which was to come in by boat? And, and when does this start? I think you've mentioned it a bit, but is it around the 1730s? The first documented entries by boat, um,
1: 1739. In this area. Yeah. Into the, into the Cape Fear, into the Cape Fear specifically. And they're coming for various reasons. Most of it, well, it starts with Royal Governor Arthur Dobbs. Dobbs received, and he was from Ireland and he received, he got a grant for some inordinate amount of land out in the, Western Piedmont of the the colony. And he was setting that up for Irish immigration. So you had Irish coming in earlier and it just kind of was picked up by the Scots. They did the same thing. Another another man, oh, I just forgot his name, Campbell. He received a a large grant pretty much adjacent to Dobbs. And he started opening up North Carolina as, as a real estate venture for Scottish Highlanders. And there were already some Highlanders already in the colony that had come by land in the Cumberland, Bladen, Anson County areas. And so it was just a matter of, of attracting more. And what really drives this immigration is high rents in Great Britain they just can't, these these people can't afford to live there anymore. And it's interesting, the the immigration records from Europe, on the European side of the, the Atlantic, they literally list who the person is on the boat, where they're originally from, their age, their occupation, and why they're coming over. And it's also interesting to note who's coming from where. So let's say, The Scots that are living in London or in England proper, a lot of those people that are leaving England are artisans. They're very skilled, and they're coming over for a fresher start. Those that are leaving Scotland, for the most part, are farmers, and they're getting away from the high rents. Not so much the religious persecution, although I'm sure there was probably some, but yeah, you come to America and and the religion is pretty well free. By 1770, the North Carolina General Assembly has basically to entice more Highlanders, they've added a little bonus. So if you come get a piece of land,
0: you're rent free for four years. If you come over, you're already getting a good start. And as you pointed out, this process starts in the 1730s, which is before this very noted Battle of Culloden, which is going to start pushing out the clan system. It's going to start pushing more Scottish Highlanders to look elsewhere. So the prospect of the colonies was already embedded in Scottish culture, or at least their their consciousness, about what it could offer them. But this Battle of Culloden that we've seen in Outlander, uh, and certainly in history books, and and also everything that happens after is going to really up the immigration from Scotland to the colonies. And so what would have been the arrival process? I mean, how long are they on these ships and and what are they hoping to see when they get there? Are they hoping to make these land deals that we did see on Outlander when Jamie works with uh, Governor Tryon? But what can they expect when they put their feet down in Brunswick town and kind of look towards a new life? Well,
1: the journey, depending on the ship, depending on the weather, ocean currents, could take anywhere from three weeks to three months. Um, you know, they may have to stop somewhere and do repairs, or the wind may just die, or the wind may be blowing in the opposite direction, and they're having to tack all the way across the Atlantic. So it really depends on the length of the journey and, and what they had to endure. But when they get here, they come into the Cape Fear River. They sail up to Brunswick. They dock and they get off the boat. And it's different. It's going to be different. You're you're looking at instead of hills and mountains, you're looking at flat as a pancake. Yeah, you know, if it wasn't for the Carolina Bays, this place would look like Iowa with trees. Um, but they, they would be swampy. Yeah, it's gonna be swampy, it's gonna be buggy, it's gonna be hot, it's gonna be damp, but it's different. And they know chances are there's family, friends, or at least kinsmen of some sort upriver, a hundred miles away. You've just gone three thousand miles, you've got a hundred miles to go. So there's gonna there's probably gonna be that relief. Unfortunately, the, the research that I've yeah, been working on does not describe what it was like when they first get here. But knowing how the Scots operated in the 18th, 19th, even the 20th century, you may be a stranger. You know, this, It may be a Scotsman meets another Scotsman in a, on a new place. They may not know each other, but they're not a stranger. There's gonna be a support network for them, either organized or not. If you find if you're a Scotsman landing in the New World, you find another Scotsman, chances are that other Scotsman is gonna help you in some way.
0: Well, and we see that early on in in the fourth season of the show when when Jamie and Claire travel upriver, they're gonna have an unfortunate incident with uh Stephen Bonnet, who we're gonna talk about in future oh, yeah. episodes. And then they're going to connect with his family that's already here, which is Anchicasta at River Run. And so there are going to be those points that you want to make sure you check in with, probably take their advice on how they were able to put down roots in America, which is, again, so far from Scotland and so far culturally and geographically and topographically. And so it's going to be about learning from the trial and error of the people who came before you. Right. Now, talk to me a bit about why Britain and the king is going to allow Scottish Highlanders, who he's just kind of stamped down in a rebellion in Scotland, to come over to this you know, grand experiment of colonization here in the new world. Well, some of
1: it is you remove the rotten apples from the bunch. We don't need this over here close to home. We'll send them over. So there's some of that some of it is to if you're if you're loyal then let's give you a little reward let's have land waiting for you when you get over to the new world and you can help establish the colonies to more better benefit the crown
0: well that's so what's going to happen that. that's that's what'll happen with Jamie because he will be given land by governor tryon to help bring more scottish highlanders and and back country people into the fold and under kind of British rule, if you will. Right.
1: And even though you're looking at those that fought at Columbia and were banished or were allowed to immigrate over, you know, before they left or after the battle, they pretty much had to take an oath of allegiance. And most of those Scots kept their word. So... Decades later, when revolution breaks out in North Carolina, you know, the American colonists cannot 100% rely on this, the Highlanders to come into the fray on their side. As we know with Battle of Creek, a goodly number of those remain loyalists. After Moores Creek Bridge, I'm not going to say that the hammer fell on them from you know, the committees of safety over here. But a lot of those Highlanders remained neutral. Some in 81 went back to being loyalists and assisted the British forces, but a lot of them did remain neutral.
0: Well, and I think we're even underselling the loyalty that Scottish Highlanders were known for. It was entrenched in the clan system. It was very much a part of their identity. And so you have to imagine that the king and Britain sees this as an opportunity to instill people who were also known for being very strong, willed yes. and physically on their side in case a rebellion or more likely when a rebellion starts to fester in the colonies. I mean, they're really building up their ranks by offering opportunity.
1: They really are. And you know, as, a, as a result, the, the British really relied on trying to create a Royal Highland Regiment in North America. Prior to the Battle of Moores Creek Bridge, yes, they had the beginnings of a, of a regiment. They had a battalion that was formed in Canada. They were forming another battalion in uh, New England, and they were prepared to form a third battalion in North Carolina during 75-76. Josiah Martin just kind of decided to be a kingmaker. And some of the, some of the Highlanders that were sent down here in se- late 75, he began to promote the higher ranks. And even some of the ones that were already here, like Donald McDonald, he went on and jumped the gun and promoted him to Brigadier General in North Carolina. He would have been a lieutenant colonel in the Royal Highland Regiment. Had he had he you know, accepted that, and also Martin fully expected that all the Highlanders and Regulators in North Carolina would just flock to the King's standard, and that didn't
0: happen. And if you're listening to this show and you're about to start watching or are already watching season six of Outlander you're going to recognize all of the names that Jim just said, because Josiah Martin is mentioned. Donald McDonald is an on-screen character in the first episodes of season six. And so, you know, Josiah Martin being the final Royal governor of North Carolina before the Revolutionary War, which should show you how close our story on screen is getting to the American Revolution. Diana Gabaldon was very smart in bringing all of these real figures in because Jamie, while he is living He and Claire are living at very extreme circumstances. You know, they're seeing behind the doors and inside of rooms that a lot of Scottish Highlanders never would. These are still real people. These are still real situations that would have happened for Scottish Highlanders here in the colony of North Carolina. And so as you're watching this show and reading these books and joining along with us for the show, all of these people had a part to play in very real history that's going to come to bear very quickly And still have ramifications for today. Now, one thing I want to ask you, Jim, is Claire and Jamie and, and their family arrive in Wilmington in 1767. That is a very interesting time because as you mentioned at the beginning, this is the year after Brunswick and Wilmington have been involved in an armed rebellion against the King's Stamp Act. And so what kind of environment are they walking into here in North Carolina?
1: it actually calms down pretty quickly after the stamp act once the, because worst case scenario, the revolution breaks out in 1765, 1766. That's worst case, best case parliament caves in and repeals the stamp act, which is exactly what they did. And I won't say they caved in. I mean, they did because of, because of the merchants, the London merchants, as a, as a matter of fact, the Stamp Act will be the first act ever repealed by Parliament.
0: And this was a tax that colonists right. were this having to tax. deal with.
1: It, it was the first time Parliament was going to actually physically tax the American colonies, and they did not like that at all. But by repealing the Stamp Act, well, the Americans figured they won. So pretty much in the Americans' minds, bygones be bygones. It's over. It's done. Let's get back to... To living and thriving. And Tryon's mind, oh no, 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 no. And and this is this will be important to Tryon because Tryon's new. You know, Tryon's thrust into the governorship uh, when, when Dobbs dies in on uh, March 28, 1765. Tryon is nothing more than the lieutenant governor. He doesn't become governor until December of 65. And When he goes to Wilmington to take the oath of office, it's speculated that he had planned to name Wilmington as the colonial capital. And because of events that would occur right after he gets to Wilmington, he quickly changes his tune and decides at that moment that Newbern is going to be the capital. And he decides to build the palace in now, in 1767, the palace is probably, it's at least a foundation and maybe a few courses of brick, but it takes a good five years to build that palace to where Tryon can actually move there. So in 67, they're probably meeting with, I mean, they could be meeting with Tryon in Newburn, but more likely, yeah, they're meeting with Tryon in Wilmington
0: which is what they do. I mean, that's how you're introduced to, uh, to William Tryon. And for those who have seen the show and read the books, you are coming into Tryon's story after his ego has been greatly bruised here in the Cape Fear. I mean, the, the, the people at Brunswick Town, which was his first home as governor, they hold him under house arrest. They're burning effigies in Wilmington against this Stamp Act. You know, Claire and Jamie have impeccable timing about arriving at places where major events are about to happen, but they actually miss out on a really revolutionary and rebellious time in the Cape Fear by just about one year. I mean, they're dealing with things elsewhere, but there's still a lot happening. And so they're coming into an area that is not just a town that's kind of waiting for a revolution. It's already kind of embraced an opportunity to show its strength, and show its rebellious side. And so 1767, Cape Fear, Brunswick Town, and Wilmington, uh, it might be a little quieter, but it hasn't always been that way.
1: Right, and and, yeah, and I, I downplayed it a little bit. Yes, things were, were kind of, in 67, things were back to normal outwardly. Inwardly, there is sedition afoot. We were doing, archeo- East Carolina was doing archaeology archeolo- at the site, And just a few years ago, we were working on a tavern. And in that tavern, we found this tiny little glass jewel that had embossed in it, Wilkes and Liberty 45. Now, that was a seditious saying in 1767, 68, 69 on up. Now, that tavern burned probably in 1768, So this is before really everything starts to slip in the Cape Fear and and, and sedition becomes open. So we're looking at underground sedition preparing for what's to come in, in less than 10 years.
0: Now, to, to put a pin on this part of the conversation, I'm curious, through all your research, I know that you have found manifests that, that list Highlanders coming, maybe not specific places, but list them in broad numbers. Do you know how many, or do we know how many Scottish Highlanders came through this area, or is it something that we really have to guess at? We're really going
1: to have to guess, but at least
0: 15,000.
1: At least fifteen thousand, and like I said, it begins in seventeen thirty nine. There's a little influx. There's an influx in the in around seventeen fifty four, fifty five, and then there's this this massive wave coming in in the seventeen seventies. But yeah, they're coming in pretty pretty steady. I've got manifests on ships. Let me pull that up here. You're looking at, for example, just in seventeen seventy three. You've got one, two, three, four, four ships, and you've got hundred and two Highland passengers, hundred and two Scotch passengers, two hundred and forty four Scotch passengers, two hundred and twenty-eight Scotch passengers, and their baggage.
0: So they're coming in by the hundreds
1: through Brunswick. Coming in by the hundreds, right. Wow. You've got all right here's one that I've actually found the the manifest for that has the that has the the numbers of people and their occupations everything, the Carolina Packet, which arrived at Brunswick on January 31st, 1775. She's carrying linens, woolens, hats, pewter, copper, silk, leather, gunpowder, paint, paint, oil, iron, haberdashery, sugar, herrings, and 58 passengers. And I've got the names for all
0: of them. And they're all Scottish Highlander passengers? They're all Scots Highlanders, yep. Well, to finish out this conversation, because you have mentioned that it seems to be around 1775, you have your last records that indicate Scots Highlanders coming over. Is that when this stops, or do they start including them in different ways?
1: Oh, no, they start back right after the war ends. Okay. Because here's two more from 1785.
0: So they are still coming in. After the war. I mean, it's, it, certainly, it certainly kind of slows down there at the beginning, but this is going to be an ongoing process. I mean, we're seeing it here on the show, through the books, through what we've talked about before the war. But Scottish Highlanders are going to come over well after we are no longer British subjects and Correct. we are now our own governing body.
1: And they keep in, – in England, they kept
0: meticulous records. Well, that helps us now when we're doing research. Exactly. Now, uh, at Brunswick Town today, uh, do you talk about Scottish Highlanders and kind of what their impact would have been here in the Cape Fear? I, I know that they don't stay here. There's, there's certainly opportunities across the state that are going to speak to them a bit more. But do you talk about what impact the Scottish Highlanders would have had in our, uh, in our area?
1: We do, you know, and definitely more than what we used to. Thanks to, thanks to the Outlander series. You know, got to give kudos to that. That's really what has stemmed a lot of this. We've always had Scots that have visited and have, have inquired over the years, but not like what we're having now. It's to the point now where we're actually working with the Scottish Society. They are planning a statewide heritage tour where they're going to have memorials set up at different places. Wilmington's going to be one. We're going to be another one. And we're actually, it's looking like we're actually going to be the first stop since this was the primary port of debarkation. And so that's really going to help us be able to really talk more about the immigration because it is, it is an important part of the story of Brunswick. It's an important part of the story of the Cape Fear. And you, you can actually trace the development of the Cape Fear through this immigration.
0: That's a fascinating story, because so much happened at Brunswick Town, even in its short life. And uh, and so I would encourage all of our listeners to go visit Brunswick Town in Winnebo. Jim and his staff have created a, an incredible site that is not just a colonial site. It also features a full-scale remaining Civil War fort in Fort Anderson, but it's important to denote the difference. You know, we see Claire and Jamie and their family in Wilmington, and we're going to follow that journey in our next couple of episodes about what they would have seen and what they would have dealt with. But if you want to go walk in the footsteps of real Scottish Highlanders, go to Brunswick town, because as Jim just said, 15,000 or around 15,000 would have stepped off the boat and gotten their first taste of the new world at Brunswick town. And so that's a great place to start, as I said, walking in the footsteps of Scottish Highlanders in the Cape Fear. So, Jim, thank you so much for your time, and yeah. uh, I hope that you get to learn more about Scottish Highlanders. We always talk about different things, so uh, I'm sure you'll come to me when you have more research, and uh, oh, yeah. hopefully we'll share it with our listeners. But uh, I appreciate your time, and thanks for kind of kicking off our journey with the Scottish Highlanders in the Cape Fear.
1: Yeah, my pleasure, always.
0: Thank you. Always. you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Bergwin Wright presents Outlander in the Cape Fear. Join us next week when we will walk the streets of colonial Wilmington to get a sense of what kind of town and world Claire and Jamie would have walked into in 1767. We'll also take a deeper look at the corruption and cruelty of the colonial justice system, which would have been carried out right here on the grounds of what is now the Bergwin Wright House. Until then, be sure to subscribe to this podcast by searching "Bergwin Wright Presents on your favorite podcast platform, so you never miss an episode. And leave us a review, which will help more people find the show. Be sure to also follow Bergwin Wright House and Gardens on all social media platforms, including Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok, for the latest on what we're doing here at the site. This podcast and all the exciting projects we do at the Bergwin Wright House are made possible by donations and community support. Please consider donating to our mission to further education and preservation of Wilmington's oldest historic site by donating at the link in each episode's description or on our website at bergwinwrighthouse.com donate and the number one. Thank you so much for supporting us. This podcast was produced, edited, and hosted by me, Hunter Ingram. We would like to thank Rachel Ross for our cover art design and the National Society of the Colonial Dames of America in the state of North Carolina for their support. I'll see you next time on Bergwin Wright Presents Outlander in the Cape Fear. The Durable Restoration Company is a proud sponsor of Berguin Wright Presents. At Durable Restoration, they specialize in exterior historic restoration services. All of their craftspeople and artisans are employees and trained in-house using traditional materials, tools, and techniques that are tried and true. They have a long list of historic landmarks across the nation that they are proud to have helped preserve for future generations. For all your upcoming restoration needs, contact Durable Restoration at durablerestoration.com or call toll free at 1-877-340-9182.